Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. Welcome. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Joan. She just has the day off. Nothing wrong. Just me and Lady B hanging out behind the microphones here. So many things to get to today. Um, we're going to talk with, well, we're going to talk a little Chicago mayoral, uh, new information out today about several of the candidates. None of it nice, because this is the point where the mud starts flying. And we're going to talk a little, believe it or not, Dr. Phil. We're going to talk about um, an play that sounds fascinating. I was supposed to get to see it, but basically discussing in in dramatic form uh, by a really hot up-and-coming Chicago-based director, um, racial inequities and systemic racism in the education of young people and expectations that we have of those young people in our schools. And before we get to any of that, I have a couple of tidbits of news and a question for you. Just uh, came out over the wires a little bit ago in Memphis, Tennessee, two Memphis Fire Department EMTs who were fired for failing to come to the aid of Tyree Nichols have had their licenses suspended. The Emergency Medical Services Board called an emergency meeting in Nashville, and they ruled on the license suspensions for Jamichael Sandridge and Robert Long. And they ruled that they cannot be EMTs anymore. Also coming up, 20 hours more of the Tyree Nichols footage. Have you watched any of it? Have you brought yourself to a screen, a larger screen on your desk, a smaller screen on your phone? Because I have not been able to do it. And at first I thought, well, it's your obligation. You're here talking about it. You have to look at it. And then I thought, no, I don't have to look at it. Sadly, at this point, you know what this kind of brutality looks like. If you've been on this planet long enough to tune into a live stream or a radio station or a podcast of this show, if you know how to push those buttons, you have seen this kind of violence and it doesn't look much different and it doesn't get any better. The first that I can remember seeing was the Rodney King beating and it hasn't stopped since. But if you feel that you're obligated to look at it, I would love to hear from you and love to know the reason why. And if you've wrestled with it and not looked at it, I would also like to hear from you. I don't I don't think there's a I, part of me wants to say, no, there is a right answer unless you have uh, a judiciary role in this event. If you're on the board, if you're sitting on a licensing, if you're going to be on a jury. Yeah, then it's your obligation. You must look. But unless you have some capacity to effect change directly in this case, part of me says you shouldn't look. Part of me says it's just up to you. Part of me says to look at it is just exploiting this man's pain, this family's pain, this city's pain, these people's pain one more time. 
I'm part of me thinks, you know, maybe there are people who need to see this to, to be motivated to do constructive things. Maybe this is what drives them to try and make change and affect justice. 20 more hours of footage to be released. How much is enough? How much do you need to see? And then you hear some of the experts who are asked to comment on the footage. And, you know, it sounds horrifying. Well, on the footage from the pole-mounted security camera, you can't really see what the EMTs are doing for him. Do you need to see what they're doing for him if you see that they're standing 20 feet away and doing nothing? How much is enough? I spent a lot of the week thinking about that. A lot of the week wondering. I, I, I knew I was coming in here today to fill in for Joan. And I thought, am I doing a bad job as, as, a, as a caretaker of this radio station? Am I neglecting my responsibility if I don't look? It's hard to know the right thing for other people, but for myself, no, I, I, it's enough. The audio is enough. And this is going to make sense in a minute, but I'm reminded of something that my mother taught me in a very, very unrelated area about what you see versus what you hear. Because we've all heard the audio now. When I was in sixth grade, I had the soundtrack to hair. I loved it. I learned all the words. I could sing it. Loved it. And Hair's touring company was coming from Broadway to Chicago. And I asked my mother if we could go see it. And her first answer was yes. And then she changed her mind. And I asked, why can't we go? And she said, well, I understand that there's a lot of nudity in it. And I said, so? I've heard it all. I know about it. I've seen, I've seen, so I've seen pictures in health class. And my mother said, it's one thing to know something or hear something or even sometimes see a picture of it. It's another matter entirely to see it in front of your face. And I don't know if we knew enough brain science at that time to understand where that goes in. But I think my mother was right. It's one thing to know about something. It's one thing to read about Tyree Nichols. It's one thing to hear his mother breaking down at the press conference. It's another thing to see it in front of your face on your big computer screen. Do you need to see that kind of pain in front of your face to be outraged? Do you need to see that kind of pain in front of your face to know that it's real and happening? How much would it take for you to believe it if you still don't? I can't imagine that you still don't. But I would like to know if you've made a different decision or the same decision as I made and why you made it. That's kind of the point of being live, local, and progressive. 
Here's the phone number, 773-763-9278. That's 773-763-WCPT. You can also use that number to text. And I will read some of those messages on the air. I'm trying to. There we go. So those will be coming in, and now I have them on my little screen in front of my face. So I can see them when you text me. Here's another thing I wanted to ask you about a little closer to home. Uh, There is somebody running for alderman in the 50th Ward in Chicago. And he had a lot of, he's a teacher, he was supported by the Chicago Teachers. And a lot of liberal people in the ward. He's running against, well, I'll I'll get to the details in just a minute, but he said something on Twitter that was just straight out hateful in 2019, which last I checked is still within most people's living memory. Something so utterly hateful that it should appall anybody of any ethnic group or religion. He didn't disclose it to his campaign. So my question for you, and I will clean up the language, but I will share it with you in, in just a moment. And I guess, can I get to the, right to these phones, Lady B, or are we just queuing them up for me to swing at in a moment? Well, in that case, I'll get to your phone calls in just a second. Again, the number 773-763-9278 to call or to text. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. It's the Joan Esposito Show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan. And yes, we are live local and progressive. The Santita Jackson Show. During the Olympics, we want to see these women, and we are excited that they win. And the viewership is extremely high. They could twin the games. They could do that. They could make a business decision to grow the league. They could do that. Because these women, essentially, they are being forced to get a second job. That is really hard on the body. I mean, this is awful. The Santita Jackson Show, weekday mornings at 6 on WCPT 820. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We certainly are live, local, and progressive. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan. Are you going to watch more of the Tyree Nichols footage? Have you seen any of it? Can you bear to watch it? Do you feel you need to watch it? Do you feel you are better off, um, not personally comfortable, but I mean just doing the right thing by not watching it? Let's go to, uh, I'm fishing for the right mouse. Here it is. Ah. Settling in here on Jones Shift. Let's go to, uh, oh, come on, mouse, little mouse. There we go. Jay in Chicago, welcome. You're on WCPT. Thanks for having me, Lady B. Uh, I am not Lady B. I'm Tori, but welcome, Jay. Hi. Hi. I, um, I, I, I did watch it. Uh, my wife told me she had watched the part of it and couldn't watch more than a few seconds on it. I think she was a little bit more... Less squeamish than I was, and I've actually seen uh, in my in my youth seen gunshot uh, victims uh, 
Uh, and I realized that there's a, when I watched this tape, I realized it's totally different than seeing someone getting get shot because it's, it's, it's usually quick. And in this instance, I watched five seconds of it, and they told me it went on for several seconds. I couldn't watch more than five seconds of it because it was going to be a slow death. So and wait, wait, wait. I want to make sure I understand. You could watch five seconds of a shooting video, but you could watch all of this beating video. Am I understanding you correctly? I've seen, I've seen it in my in my actual life. It has happened. I see. And and in that and in that time, you can turn away because the victim is in, in some cases not going to survive, and within a few seconds, that's it. And, but in this instance, it's watching somebody get beat to death is a lot more painful to watch somebody getting killed instantly. So let me ask you, what 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 made you decide that you would watch it? I watched, because uh, my wife said it was terrible. It's this, it's bad. They did this. I, I just wanted to see for myself is, will somebody actually treat that bad? So so in this case, it was a matter of your wife had, had piqued your interest in watching it, and you wanted to have that commonality with her of what was her experience compared to your experience. Right, and why she couldn't watch the whole entire thing. And do you do you understand now why she couldn't watch it? I, I, yeah, I understood within five seconds of it, within the first two blows to the person, person's uh, face. And I, and I was really surprised that the young man still stood standing for the period of time that he did. It's amazing. I mean, I haven't seen it, but it is amazing what the human body can take. And I, yeah. Well, tell your wife I'm with her. I don't judge anyone who has has watched it, but I I'm, I didn't even try the five seconds. I think I I, and I don't know if that makes me a, a weak willed person, but I think you can have compassion for something even if you don't see it in front of your face. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate your call. Let's go to Miles and Skokie. Hi, Miles. Welcome. You're on WCPT. Whoops, Miles, let me try that again. Hey, Miles. M-A-R-V, Marv. Oh, Marv, I beg your pardon. Okay. Uh, there, there are three kinds of people who join the police force. And um, there are good characters, bad characters, and neutral. And the good characters are, are in it to serve the community and protect and be community cops uh, to, to consult with citizens who are searching for help. And they ca- they care about public safety, right? But you're a little off the off the off what I wanted to know, which was I know. Well, uh, I'm going to tell you. Uh, well, you better tell me faster. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Go I ahead. I'm a professor of ethics, and I I don't know when to stop. All right. So, uh, have you watched it? Yes or no? Yes, I watched it on uh, MSNBC. The whole the whole thing, and I saw them uh, treating uh, Tyree Nichols as a football and kicking him in the head and making up stories to cover themselves. Those are the bad characters, the bullies. But I want to know, Marv, 
What would be behind a decision in your mind? Was there any moment where you thought, I don't have to watch this, but I'm going to watch it anyway? Or did you not think about it? You just let it roll on in front of you? I let, I let it roll on uh, because I, I want to cover all the news that comes out and be well informed. And so you think that someone who doesn't watch it can't be well informed? No, I didn't say that. Well, I'm asking you. No, no I don't think that at all. Okay. Uh, I um, I think it would help if people were sensitive to the basics, which, which means um, that they knew why they were ethical and they knew uh, how how much benefit it brought them and and how much of a better life. So you think that, that watching it is, is appropriate for an ethical person and it, it heightens your ethical awareness? Am I am I phrasing that correctly? Uh, no, it doesn't heighten your ethical awareness. It 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 shows you how brutal people can be. Ah, got it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's go to Joseph. Joseph in Chicago. Did you watch the Tyree Nichols video and why? Oh, we've lost him. Oh, sorry. We've lost him. But the texts are coming in also, so I don't want to neglect those. Uh, let me... He push a little bit. By the way, if you want to join us and you're at work and you can't pick up the phone and say, I'm watching it, I'm not watching it, here's why, uh, you can text us your thoughts. That number is 773-763-WCPT. That's 773-763-9278. And I am clicking in vain. All right. I'm giving up on my little mouse on this one. I'm going <laughs> to... It's probably me. If there is a technical shortcoming anywhere in this program, I can promise you the fault is mine. Let's go to um, the the thing I promised I would tell you about, because I have another question for you. That, yes, it does concern ethics. The 50th Ward race, far north side, most intensely Jewish neighborhood in the city of Chicago. The challenger... For Deborah Silverstein, only Jewish person sitting on the city council of Chicago right now. the cha- And many of people in the Jewish community have complaints about her and many people who are not like her. Uh, but in this case, it happens that the person running against her, who's a teacher, is the son of Pakistani immigrants. He is uh, endorsed by the Democratic Social Socialist Party. Uh, he was... Very support. He was supported by lots of Jewish people I know, liberal Jewish people, and comes now in the Tribune. The story that he tweeted as recently as 2019, and he he has admitted he tweeted these things from a since deleted account, and he has admitted that he didn't. He didn't inform his backers of these tweets. Again, we get into the opposition research thing, and he has expressed regret. For the following statements. Ready? You may not. I'm going to clean them up for you. It's really disturbing. In a tweet dated May of 2019, he wrote, F word Israel and F word all you Zionist scum. In December 2019, he called a white woman a cracker. 
can somebody say they've changed their views that much in four years? And then, and then I love this when people apologize and then they excuse themselves. He apologized when he got caught. I regret these words. They are harmful, especially going through the growth of who I am as a person. I don't think I was ever that juvenile as a person that I called anybody an N-word or a, uh, I could list any number of other expletives that I would never use. I I think you don't grow that much in four years if you're already an adult. I just don't believe it. So how much do you think someone can grow in four years? Oh, we've got John back again. John in Evanston. Let's try again. Hi. Welcome to WCPT. Yes. Well, I uh, I wanted to comment on um, your uh, uh point of saying, you know, you don't want to watch it. You can still be informed. Um, I'm I'm a whole lot older than you. And, you know, during uh, the Vietnam War, uh, every evening on, on national news, they would show um, soldiers in body bags. And that's what started the biggest amount of protest against the war was finally U.S. citizens seeing what's going on. And uh, not uh, too far uh, long ago, they were, uh, one of our presidents was stopping that from being shown. And I think it, the horror of it, the, the, that part where you're looking the other way or looking through your fingers or somehow or other affecting you is what causes people to take action not just listening to it and saying, yes, I understand, but being really upset over it to the point where you're going to do something. So you you think, if I understand you correctly, that being, I, I would use the phrase traumatized, being visually traumatized over and over by these scenes of brutality is what it takes for people to take action. And if I understand you correctly... A few times is not enough. You have to keep going through it again and again and again before you will take action? I think that's what gets the majority of people moving. Huh. Absolutely. The trauma, if, if you don't think, you know, life is trauma, life is tough, but when, when it's soft soap and, and it, it, um, it is, uh, you're being fed but just little nibbles, you don't react the way it does when it hits you harder. So do uh, you, do, pandemic, do you want to, hold up, hold up, John, 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 do, do you want to characterize then the people who don't want to watch it as somehow lightweights or? or no, no, that's what you're saying right now. I'm you're asking. Twisting it to your side. I'm no, a- I don't call them lightweights. I just say that I think you have to be strong in life. And you take the good and the bad, and sometimes the the strong things that you see will make you take action and uh, uh, get moving on a subject. I used to uh, think that. I used think? to think that exact thing, but I'm starting to feel like it's exploiting the pain of others now. If I mean, if you're already taking action, how much more action well, can you take? It fix, 
if exploiting the pain of others means that we're going to get something done over this, what do you think about the Floyd case? If people didn't see that over and over again, you wouldn't be as upset and have young people in the street. Well, they're both valid points. I, I would have to say to you that just having seen the the Floyd tape in, in recent memory was po- probably, to be perfectly honest with you, one of the reasons why I felt like I didn't need to have to rip, rip everything open again. Uh, but it's a legit point, and I thank you very much for calling to make it. It's 2.30. We are WCPT. We are live, local, and progressive. This is Joan Esposito's show. In a moment... You're going to meet one of the up-and-coming directors of Chicago. He's got a show up now at the Red Twist Theater, known for their political theater, their productions. And uh, it confronts the issue of educational systemic racism. I think it sounds like something that I'm going to want to see. And you'll meet him in a moment on WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at MulticulturalCamp.com. Text away, 773-763-9278. Before I introduce you to our next guest, I just want to check a couple of these texts that I tried to get to, and I couldn't press the right button. This came in about whether or not you are planning to watch the Tyree Nichols video footage. More of it coming out today. I think this sums it up for those who don't wish to watch. Uh, I'm not going to to condemn any of the others. I don't need to see it any more than I watched any of the others. I know what beating looks like, and I don't have to subject myself to that. I hear him calling out for his mom in my mind and my heart every time I hear his name. Yeah, I think a lot of us will, whether we watch or not. The next gentleman you're about to meet, Mr. Jamal Howard, is a He's a directing star here in Chicago. I just have to say that. Welcome, Mr. Howard. Thanks for joining us on WCPT. Hi, thank you for having me. And congratulations, by the way, you just got a directing fellowship at the Goodman Theater. So I read about that and they do great work over there. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to do at the Goodman. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm super excited about that. It's exciting. And you got to show up now, and you're also a choreographer. It's like nothing you don't do. But let's talk a little bit about the show at Red Twist, because I read, I, I, I will be going to see the show, but I read about it, and I have not seen a show that really talks about, in our, in our modern terms, um, the way that uh, black youth are treated in the school system when, when we have uh, usually white uh, teachers who are, are sort of making that effort in italics, making that effort to uh, to equalize a system that is fundamentally not equal. You want, do you want to talk about what appealed to you about the show and how you've looked at it? Um, yeah. So this show uh, called The Great Con um, is uh, really about this uh, teenager named Jaden and how he's navigating um this unsafe world that he's discovering um, around him. And that includes his uh, 
school experience and um, working with uh, another uh, teenager on a school project that wasn't really built for, you know, his cultural background or um, in, in that sense. And so he is faced with a teacher who has positive intentions, but as we all know, good intentions are not enough. Um, And uh, so he has to deal with how to talk to that teacher about the class that they have that's the history of the Middle Ages class. And he's just essentially like, this is your white history, and what does it have to do with me and what I'm going through with now? Um, And yeah, that's the basic idea of what's going on. Yeah, the erasure of an entire group of people and continents full of people is very, I mean, this young man is pretty clear on what's happened in, I'm using this in quotes, white history in his school. Um, and, And this is a thing that really... It, most white people just we don't think about it we just plow oh yeah history and different yeah. different threads in the sweater you know pop out for for those who are in the majority culture at different times you go oh yeah you know i i never really considered that when you put this show together and you know the Red Twist Theater audience. I've been there before. It's not usually a, a, a black audience. Did that affect the way you wanted to present this to people? Did you Were you absolutely tuned in on who was going to be looking at this and what they might take away from it? You know, I definitely was aware of the Red Twist audience uh, traditionally. And, you know, I, I went into this wanting to make this show for... Um, people like me, the main character is a black nerd, um, and he's trying to deal with that identity. This has a lot to do with personal identity and how we present ourselves to the world. Mm-hmm. And so he, um, I wanted to make this show to resonate with people who identify with with the characters of the play. Um, most of the characters are people of color. They are, um, they're all nerds in their own right. And we don't see enough stories of black, young black people, young black men being able to live in their own um, identity of you know, loving video games or loving information and loving um, and really being somebody who should excel at school. Um, But when they're faced with these, you know, history lessons that completely erase what was going on with their ancestors, it, it, it makes it hard to connect in the same way that, you know, white students have to connect to the white history that's being taught. All of that in quotes, of course. Yeah, it's like a freeway with no on-ramp for them. It's just all this traffic going by. Um, by the way, as you were speaking, I, I had visions of Neil deGrasse Tyson, the, the wonderful scientist and museum director and science nerd-in-chief, I would say, sci-fi nerd-in-chief at all. Um, and, and it's the same. This is a drum that needs to be beaten harder, I would say. You know, welcome all nerds. Uh, regardless of yeah. color. So are you are you seeing a change in a historically white liberal theater company on the far north side of Chicago? Is the audience starting to evolve? Um, I think so. I know this show is definitely getting 
in a you know a, a slightly more diverse um, group of people just based on the fact that you know there's a more diverse group of people putting the show together. Um, so from our own networks, we're bringing in more uh, people in that sense. I, I think there is a positive reaction to this show um, from that audience, which then opens up people's eyes to realize, oh, our the stories don't all have to be in the same vein. We can explore other stories that talk about other people besides us um, and that there's value in that. So I, I do know that that um, the artistic director, Dusty Brown, is absolutely committed to telling more diverse stories on the stage that the company historically has. And that's really exciting to me. It um, is exciting. So let me ask you, how long has the show been up now? A couple of weeks? Um, Forgive about, me, I don't know. Yeah, like about two weeks. Can I ask, do you, do you get, do you do one of those, like, now we will sit down and hear from the audience? Do you do those or do you get feedback in any sort of way? And if so, what what are you hearing um, from the audience, are you hearing any kind of surprise or what What are you hearing? Yeah, um, personally, I haven't done a ton of like feedback sessions in that sense. I'm not sure if the company is doing that in any um, significant way, but at least from the shows I've been to and just hearing cat, you know, anecdotally from different um, audience members, they're really into it. They're really surprised by how um, fresh and funny the show is while it is still dealing with all these heavy and dark and and bad things that are happening or have happened in in our communities and in in our in our um, society so there is a very good positive reaction from what i've seen i think people are very open i think it's just a matter of sometimes you know companies don't realize that their audience is open to more things and different stories. There's a freshness to these characters. They aren't living in caricature, though they are, um, they are having a conversation with stereotypes and they are um, talking about that or, or playing with, again, with identity. But they themselves are full dimensional characters that are not, just, you know, the stereotypical view of a black teenager. Yes. Well, I think I think that that um, that's so important. I remember speaking. I spoke with um, the writer of the ripple, the wave that carried me home before I saw the show. And I was delighted. And I think that you would be delighted when you see a show that would carry the message lightly with a big helping of humor it, it's it's the mary poppins thing the spoonful of sugar really does i mean i hate to quote mary poppins but she had that part right so 
He did, and I 100% agree. Michael Gene Sullivan, the playwright for uh, The Great Con, absolutely uses that as a tactic on this show. It works. It's like it works if you're Mary Poppins. It works if you're giving a dog a pill. It works any way you do it. Just like coat it with something tasty, and then all of a sudden you get healthier. Hold on a sec, if you would. Um, We have a couple of things we need to do, and and I want to ask you a little bit about how you put the show together and um, and Chicago theater, because I noticed that this is going to sound so cheaty, but I noticed when I looked at your phone number, it's a San Jose phone number. You didn't, you didn't come from here. So I want to hear about that. Hold on. We'll be right back to you. It's Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder. And for Joan, it's quarter to three. We are live, local and progressive WCPT. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are live, local, and progressive. This is Joan Esposito's show, but I'm not Joan. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan today. And uh, you are getting a chance to hear from one of the hot directors in Chicago right now. Mr. Jamal Howard has a show up right now at Red Twist Theater. If you're looking to uh, head out there and see it, I think that it's a small house, but they do have seats available. 1044 West Bryn Mawr is the address, and you can find them online, Red Twist Theater in Chicago. Um, Mr. Howard, Thank you so much for uh, holding on with us. How did you come to be doing theater here in Chicago? Yeah, well, I grew up in San Jose, uh, as you noticed, um, with my phone number. Yes, um, I have I have a 415. When I texted you, you're probably like, oh, someone from home. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. right. Well, we were in California for a long time. I just put on my Facebook page today that we had like this record-breaking nine feet of snow the year that we moved the boys from Berkeley back to Chicago. You came from San Jose. What brought you here? Uh, School. I went to Loyola um, for my undergrad, and I studied theater and PR and advertising. So I have two degrees. Um, Yeah, Uh, I loved getting my PR and ad degree, but I've only been doing theater (laughs) since I graduated. Not many people can say that. What was your what was your trajectory? She asks, knowing that there are a lot of listeners thinking, really, how is this possible? You make you make your way in the arts here in Chicago. Tell everyone, please. Yes. So um, I started with uh, at the Beverly Arts Center on the south side, actually, and a bunch of the schools and the surrounding areas teaching uh, theater and dance and then also uh, directing and choreographing a ton of musical theater down there. Um, I grew up doing musicals in the Bay Area in San Jose since I was eight. So I've been doing theater practically all my life. Um, it's the one, it's the main thing that has stayed. Some things have come and gone, but theater has always been there for me. And, uh, I just, I love telling stories. I love, um, collaborating with a group of artists. And so both those things kind of lead me to directing. And, um, I, uh, have been directing through, Out my career here in Chicago, I have a theater company as well called New American Folk Theater. Cool. We're just a tiny storefront theater that I'm the co-artistic director of. Where? Where? Where is it? Where? (laughs) 
Yeah, we're we're itinerant, so we bounce around. We've been at the Den Theater. We've been. We actually did a show in association with Red Twist. Um, in 2015, uh, called the Summer of Daisy Fay, but um, so we we focus on telling the American story using the resources around us. It's very utilitarian. Um, it's very um, you know folk art based, and uh, we tend to do haunting tales. We do like adult fairy tales, if you will, or we do. Um, uh, a lot of shows with music. I'm going to get on that mailing list. Absolutely. Please. So it's been um, my every place I've lived that hasn't been Chicago. And you're going to tell me if you think this is legit. I I have long spoken to the magnificence of Chicago's theater scene um, since I saw Steppenwolf performing in church basements and uh, Victory yeah. Gardens. And it was the churches a lot of times that seemed to house yeah. these places. But um um, I think one of the things that made Chicago really wonderful for theater was that you could have a theater company and rent a space to have it in, um, which you really cannot easily do in the Bay Area or New York City. I mean, you can't get 20 people together and say, let's rent an empty storefront and have a theater company. There's no fertile soil. You have to f- make Joe Papp fall in love with you, I guess. So um, how... Have you found that to be true, that Chicago is welcoming in all of its neighborhoods? Um, I found it to be true, at least in the neighborhoods I've worked with. There's definitely a big effort right now amongst Chicago theater people and and theater makers to try and expand uh, the storefront Chicago theater scene beyond, like, the north side, which is mostly where it's... um, centralized and I know there are people definitely making efforts to get more more um, theaters going on on the south side or the west side um, for sure so it, it is strangely like it's it's more concentrated in certain areas of the city but this city in general is so unique compared to most other major cities in this country. Um, you, you, like you said, even compared to New York, you can't just find a space and put a show on and put a show together. I used to be the um, rentals manager for the Den Theater in Wicker Park, which is a big rental house for live performance. Mm -hmm. Um, There are like six or so performance spaces there, small black box theaters. Yep, I've been Um, there. It's cool. It's a cool building. I mean, you may feel like you're going to plunge down the concrete stairs at one point, but you you make your way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and that's just an example of a space where you can go in and rent a theater and put up your show. You don't have to have like a million hurdles to get through to do that. Um, and, and so, so that's a really cool space. And there are other spaces like it that exist in the city. Well, it sounds like you're creating more of them. How how did the company come through? Not not necessarily yours specifically, but in in your looking back now, as we hope to see the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. How did creative people survive the ones that you know in your circle as you as you made your way through COVID? What did people do to keep body and soul together? Oh, wow. That, the, what a great question. I, I feel like it was like one day at a time or one week at a time. Um, you know, the 
the pandemic created this interesting pause for everyone, obviously. And for artists, um, we really kind of use that time to look inside ourselves and to really re-examine why are we here? Why are we doing the theater that we're doing? Do we need to do different things to make better theater that is just better for our communities and better for Chicago? And a lot of people came out of that going like, yeah, we need to do a lot, a lot of work. So there was a lot more activism that came out or started happening during the pandemic, which I am thankful for, um, there's a lot more attention now on who is making theater, who's telling the stories, and what kind of stories we're telling, both on stage and behind the scenes. Because you can have a very diverse-looking cast, which is really great and important, but who's designing that show? Who's directing it? who is producing it and all those um, things add up to tell a more authentic story that is more valuable to the community. Um, That is something that I think has gotten a huge, um, a huge platform that it didn't, that problem didn't necessarily have. Are are you thinking of, as you say these words, are you thinking at all of the Victory Gardens Theater, which is no more? Oh yes. Could you, for those who don't know, uh, and now that they're now that it's dead, you can tell, you can tell you want to tell the story of what happened to one of Chicago's old and most storied theater companies. Would you care to you know, spill a little um, tea on that? I could only say so much because I, I was not directly involved in uh, what happened, but I did watch it happen from the sidelines. Um, the company uh, was, you know, they're out going artistic director had left like right I think right before the pandemic really started and the company was in search for a new artistic director and there was um, some issues in finding that artistic director it felt like they weren't um, very uh, transparent with not just the community at large, but also with their own artistic cohort of, um, of people. They weren't very open and honest with how that search was going. So they hit a bunch of rough spots. And then essentially through the pandemic, they put um, uh, two artistic leaders um, in there. Uh, the artistic director being a black man who uh, then they just never really gave full power to never supported correctly. Um, And after that first season, they suspended that artistic director uh, from what I can tell was not great reasons or a lack of reasoning behind it. And then they just stopped communicating with their own staff, with their um, team. Plus the staff was working overtime. They were under resourced. The staff was doing the job of like 20 or 25 people, but it was only like 10 or 15 of them. So everybody was overworked and nobody was getting answers from the board. And um, then essentially the board just stopped communicating and things fell apart. That's amazing. Um, to, to watch an institution, the Victory Gardens that had been in Chicago for so many years and had been instrumental in producing 
I think Mamet did a lot of his early work there, if, if memory serves. Um, and I may be wrong about that. But to watch the whole thing just implode, it's like, whoa, no, nothing is that forever. It's kind of how I felt yeah. when I watched Donald Trump eviscerate our democracy. I'm like, whoa, we're, we're not as rock solid as I thought we were. Um, that, exactly. Well, I'm glad you're out there doing the work. I'm looking forward to seeing the show. I hope our paths cross someday so I can compliment you on your really cool red glasses, although by then you may have changed them. Um, thank, <laughs> thank you. you. Thank you for doing the work that you do, and, and we'll try and make sure that we have a good audience for you um, every place you go. And congratulations again on the fellowship. It's all very exciting. Thank you. I'm so excited for the future. I'm so excited for what Chicago has to bring. And uh, yeah, come go support theater in Chicago. Thank you. That's Jamal Howard. He's the director of the current show, The Great Con. At the, and that's not C-O-N like we fooled you. That's K-H-A-N as in Genghis. Uh, and that's up now at Red Twist. So you want to go see that. Um, I'll be there. You might be sitting next to me. And then you can say, hey, I recognize your voice at intermission, and then we'll chat. It's a couple minutes before 3 o'clock. We are WCPT Live, local and progressive. It's the Joan Esposito Show. Hey, where's Hal Sparks? I'm not sure where he is now, but I know where you can find him Saturdays at 11. It'll be right here on WCPT 820 for the Hal Sparks Radio Program, Mega Worldwide. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. From the other side? I don't know about that. I'm not from the other side. I'm from your side. That's where I'm from. Uh, Tory writer in for Joan Esposito on WCPT. We are live, local, progressive. Joan's back Monday. So don't don't sweat it. She'll be back Uh, in a moment. You're going to meet somebody who is um, the director of one of the coolest nonprofits in Chicago. I think I've I've benefited. Well, a a nonprofit that I volunteer for has benefited from their services. But I wanted to circle back a little bit. Folks are still texting about whether or not you are planning to uh, watch the new Tyree uh, Nichols video or watch the other video and why you did or didn't choose to do that. Also, uh, the candidate for 50th Ward, Alderman, um, who said some really horrific things. Um, F Israel and F all you Zionist scum and F off honky, called a woman a cracker, uh, says there may be more where that came from, but he regrets it, even though it was four years ago, which really isn't that long ago. This uh, comes to... Uh, This comes to us from the 50th Ward. There's a huge difference between respectfully criticizing the Israeli government and directing racial insults directly at the people themselves. This broke my heart because I supported the candidate and had high hopes for him and the 50th Ward. And this... Uh, about watching the uh, video, the video the victims of police, government and gun violence in general should be seen by all who can tolerate it. Sure, there are those who will exploit it, but we should not allow any room for the aggression, deniers and apologists to distort and downplay it in any way. That being said, what should really happen is that all 
radio and TV news programs should set aside five to ten minutes in prime time to go over the running total of gun, firearm, police, and government violence every day, then include any relevant video. It's an interesting concept. I think people would tune it out. I really do. I don't. I think people, you know, the thing about the thing about this graphic violent video or anything you want to show people on uh, uh, television or on the computer or on the radio is that there's no blue book test for any of this. If people can't stand it, they've got a button they can push that'll give them something else. And I think um, you, you just people dig in their heels and they get like little kids. You can't make me. So that's my take on it. But you're welcome to send your texts. Um, we we will still read them at 773-763-9278. That's where you text your thoughts if you're sneaking away from your desk or your work or wherever it is you're supposed to be to listen and to to chat with us. We, we are grateful. Andrew Witherspoon joins us now. He is the director of this super cool nonprofit called the Chicago Furniture Bank. And I could I could try to describe it, but I'm going to let Andrew do it. Hey, Andrew, Mr. Witherspoon, welcome. You're on WCPT. Hey, hey, can you, can you hear me okay? Beautifully, beautifully. Would you care to explain to folks what it is you do? Because I, I have been so fortunate um, as to work with a nonprofit that's benefited from your services, and I just think it's the coolest thing. Talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I'm Andrew, one of the co-founders and and director here at the Chicago Furniture Bank. And what we do is we collect donated furniture from all over the Chicagoland area. We bring it to our warehouse uh, where we have a 10,000 square foot showroom in Brighton Park at 4801 South Ripple Street. And we work with over 400 social service agencies, you know, formerly homeless, asylum seekers, refugees, veterans, you name it, as they're transitioning from homelessness into new homes, they may be experienced a fire, floods, or just in need of furniture. And we, we, and we offer 20-plus appointments today, both virtually and in person, so that these families and individuals are able to pick out all the furniture they need. That is so cool. Um, and, and when I first read about you guys, your story, you and your co-founder, would you talk about how that happened, how you put this together? Yeah, yeah. Uh, me and my two co-founders, were, were, we were best friends and we are best friends. Uh, James, James McPhail and, and Griffin Amder, we all met at the University of Pennsylvania freshman year. And the University of Pennsylvania offers a grant uh, for seniors looking to start uh, a nonprofit. Um, we, we applied, uh, we applied and, and were mentored by the Philadelphia Furniture Bank. That's how we d- discovered the concept. Um, and we won in t- uh, May of 2018. The three of us, we all moved into an uh, apartment here in Chicago and, and started the furniture bank. Well, you didn't have a big warehouse to start with, right? You were just kind of juggling furniture in and out of trucks as fast as you could move it. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we were able to, you know, through uh, you know, office furniture center, we were able to get six thousand square feet on July sixteenth of, of twenty eighteen, and the three of us were just renting you alls by day. We, you know, specifically were, you know, three, you know, bright eyed, bushy tailed, you know, college <laughs> college grads with muscles, you know, with some muscles yeah. and a dolly, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there are no shortcuts from from getting accounts to or from the third floor. So, yeah, we were picking up those U-Hauls, going to DePaul, door-to-door, all throughout Chicago. 
Wait, you mean and, you can't uh, you can't just drop it out the window? Because I've recommended that to people. That doesn't work. Uh, no, no, no couch out not. the window. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it, one of the things that interested me was that you forged a connection with hotels, which is something that people might not have considered. You want to talk about that a little? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we need furniture, you know, every single day we're furnishing between 16 and, and 21 homes a day. That's a lot of couches. It's a lot of beds. And so we look to organizations and buildings like hotels that have to turn over their furniture. How often do they do that? How I, I, and I say this as a self-interested person. When I sit on the couch in my hotel room, sometimes I think, how long has this been here? What's happened on this couch? How, how often do they change out that furniture? No, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Depending on the hotel chain and, and brand, every three to five years is the furniture. And then beds are being turned over, you know, and given away even more. Wow. Now, see, there are a lot of people who move into these apartments. In the case of the the group that worked um, with you that I I was volunteering with, um, we had some refugees coming from, I believe, Iran, and they were rented an apartment. But, of course, that's only half the battle. When You want to talk about what that's like when people get an apartment, what it was like before you guys showed up in town and now? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. So, you know, what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, obviously getting keys and, and getting an available apartment, you know, is, is a huge battle in itself. But everyone thinks, you know, as soon as you can get the keys, you know, it, it's done, the family's taken care of. Uh, that's not the case. You know, before 2018 when we started, you know, 87% of all of our now 400-plus partner organizations reported doing nothing to get them furniture. Um, and now, you know, there's the furniture bank. So, you know, we probably believe that, you know, four walls doesn't make a home. We want to make sure that every single person, every single family, especially those, you know, resettling from conflicts and, and fleeing, you know, refugees and asylum seekers are able to, to get that home and, and be comfortable in it. Well, I, I, I know furniture is, is important. Do you do things like pots and pans and cooking or is that somebody else? Yeah, 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 a- absolutely. The average furniture bag consists of, uh, consists of over $2,000 uh, worth of furnishings, and it includes, you know, beds right around the home, couch, chair, armchair, all the furniture you would think, and uh, kitchenware, rugs, lamps, mirrors, and artwork. So every single family that comes through our door um, is receiving, you know, a, a beginner starter. So, you know, a set of four plates, bowls, glasses, pot, pan, uh, you know, microwave. What do they, what, what kind of response do you get when they walk into the warehouse? What, what does that interaction look like? Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is a very important thing. You know, the Chicago furniture gets about, you know, providing that, you know, that second chance, helping families, helping individuals start that chapter over and you start it with dignity. Uh, that being said, everything is inspected and, and treated. Uh, with household grade disinfectants, and we make sure the quality is, is great. You know, a lot of people, as, as you can understand, if, if you you know, if you're homeless and in shelters, you know, things, especially in Chicago, how many people we have in, in need, things take a long time, and they don't necessarily believe they're going to walk out with absolutely everything they need. And we also provide that in-home installation, and so being able to to, to work with them, um, you know, is it, truly amazing. It is usually. Uh, you know, the smaller things that you wouldn't necessarily think of that, that, that evoke the biggest reaction. What are those? I, I remember. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell the story. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, I specifically was, was working with this woman as she was able to, to pick out everything. And it got to the little items. So she'd already picked out the couch, the table, the beds for her kids and everything. And she was packing away her own kitchenware set with pots and pans. It turned out that before her car, you know, before she was evicted because her car couldn't get to work, she was a baker. Uh-huh. Um, and to be able to get, you know, a, a baking set and be able to do that and be able to cook with her family just evoked so much. She just broke down crying. Um, I was, I was, I was crying with her as well, but just knowing that, you know, she's just saying she's going to go home and, and be able to bake something for her children, something she had not been able to do for over a year and a half. Um, okay. We're all crying here now. All right. I'm crying. Lady B is crying. We're all crying. Uh, so I guess in addition to people donating furnishings, perhaps Kleenex would be appropriate for people to supply at your furniture bank. Did this got to happen a lot that people just show up and see what's available to them and weep? Yes. Um, yeah, I think, I, you know, I think it's, it, it sets in, you know, they've been told they're going to get it. And then just knowing that they're putting their name on it. They're packing it up, you know, in terms of the kitchenware stuff. They're leaving with it right then and there. It really sets home that they are, you know, turning that, that chapter in their life. You know, we, we want to remind everyone that, you know, homelessness or, you know, fleeing a conflict and coming here from, you know, Iran, as, as you were discussing, it does not define you. And, the fur, you know, I created the furniture bank with, with Griffin and James to make sure that we can help, you know, organizations uh, help these people start that next chapter. I, I'm glad you do it. Um, if you can hang on another few moments, I want to ask you, what's the strangest piece of furniture that you rehomed? And also, I'd like you to speak a little bit more about what your organization looks like now in terms of staff and and um, and, and how you move all that furniture around. So hold on. We'll be right back to you. It's 17 minutes just about after 3 o'clock. I'm Tori Ryder for Joan Esposito. It is Joan's show, live, local, and progressive. The Hal Sparks Radio Program. This is the week that Steve Bannon perp walked. Do you have a round of applause? Uh, I do. I do. I'll call them up. That's not it. No, that's the sound of people seeing the spot on his forehead when he walks into the chair. That's not it either. That's the wrong one. Uh, that's the owning the libs meeting call. <laughs> he looked great. Yeah, he did, didn't he? He was wearing makeup. Hal Sparks, Saturdays from 11 to 1 on WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Just about 320. It's the Joan Esposito Show. I am Tori Ryder. In for Joan, who's back Monday. We are speaking with Andrew Witherspoon, one of the founders and current director of the Chicago Furniture Bank, uh, a tremendous nonprofit and resource for people leaving uh, situations of homelessness, for veterans, for refugees, new immigrants who need services. They uh, if you're just joining us, they provide a whole apartment full. People have uh, an opportunity to go to a warehouse and basically shop with no cash for what they need for themselves and their families. And then it all gets delivered to them. Um, isn't that right, Andrew? Does it all come with w- in a truck or how, how do you what does it look like now when people come and need a lot of stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, so on option, people can always pick it up, right? If they have, you know, a cousin Vinny who can who has a pickup truck yeah. or, or, or you all, they can pick it up. But the majority, we deliver. And we deliver all of Cook County, um, Southern Lake County, Northern Will County, and all of DuPage. How we many? Go in and, 
I'm sorry. How, how many folks are, are, are volunteering or are they paid staff who are doing this? Or what does your organization look like now? Yeah, it, it has grown from just the three of us to now we have over 55 full-time team members. Um, the majority of, of our staff is hired through the same uh, organizations and, and, and in the same communities that, that we serve. As well, like you know, Kara Chicago, Chicago Cred, and Ready Ready uh, Ready Heartland Chicago. So um, that also would I imagine help with people who are coming for whom English is not an easy access language. So you have people working in your organization who speak many different languages, couple different languages. Uh, yes, yeah, we, we we have you know several uh, you know several team members who were fluent in in Spanish. Our operations manager uh, immigrated over from Albania, us, uh, and so yes, we we do have that, and we also you know work with organizations to make sure you know if it's someone that we may not know. Uh, that, that we have access to, you know, to translators. Wonderful. That's important. I remember reading that um, of the essence when you're clearing out hotels is they, they've got a date when stuff's being delivered and you've got to scoop like a whole hotel's worth of furniture out in how, how, how long a window? Um, it, 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 it ranges, you know, the shortest window we ever had was, you know, four days we had to clean, you know, clear out 18 um, 18 floors of furniture off, you know, Michigan Avenue. Wow. Uh, we, we were able to do it running, you know, two different, you know, crews from 7 a.m. To, to 2 a.m. And, and we were able to do it. And then had pizza, I'm guessing, after that. Lots of pizza lying on the ground, eating it while you're lying on the ground. Um, what is the strangest item that you picked up and found a home for? Do you happen to recall? Uh, I will say, you know, if you think anything, the strangest thing ever, we probably got it. I think, you know, our entire team's favorite item that, that we were donated, um, someone who loved medieval and loved knights, we, we, we did a pickup and the truck came back with three different full suits of armor. Um, <laughs> I, kid, I, kid, I kid you not. Um, and we, we put them up and we still have a couple of them, you know, in, in our lobby and everyone always, always asks about them. Does anybody say I'd like that in my new home? They, they, they have, but you know, our running joke is, you know, it's, it's, it's our security guards. Ah, I like that. That's very good. That's really cute. So if people now, now you don't just take things from hotels and motels that are, are re, uh, decorating people can donate, right? Yeah, absolutely. How does that work? Yeah, we'll pick up anything and everything. The Chicago Furniture Bank, you go online to our website, chicagofurnishbank.org, to put in a request. Um, Salvation Army and Goodwill no longer go in, but we do. And then in 2020, to fund our mission, to be able to to, to expand, is that we launched uh, Illinois' first and only 501c3 junk removal company called The Honest Junk Company. So if you have clothes, if you have knickknacks, old you know Christmas ornaments, bikes, and things like that, we can pick up absolutely anything, assuming it's not glowing, you know, like uranium <laughs> or you know, radioactive. Okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're certainly the team. All proceeds go to uh, the furniture bank, and for clothes and different things, we work with various different charities and and you know sort through and deliver um, clothes, knickknacks, bikes. 
you know, building materials to them for them to use or, or resell to fund their missions. Oh, that's so cool. I didn't know. And I don't think that um, many of the folks listening, you wouldn't have known about that if, if you hadn't said something, Andrew. So if someone um, or, for example, if you're like a small landlord and someone flakes out and disappears and leaves a whole apartment and you go through all the legal stuff, um, you can you as the small landlord could just call the furniture bank and they'll come and take everything and put it to good use. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We certainly know, you know, landlords who want to get that, you know, get it on the market as soon as possible. You know, through, you know, honest junk, we can be there ASAP. And that's on the um, Chicago Furniture Bank site. There's a link to honest junk. Yes, yeah, yes, there is. You can you can go to Chicago Furniture Bank. We'll do it and, and, and we'll handle it. You know, no... no no project, no, you know, no, no mess is too big. Oh, that's so cool. So can you tell me, are there things that are particularly in demand that you don't see enough of that you could really use? I mean, if someone has something and they're like, well, I could keep this, well, I could give it away and you, you really need it. What, what would those things be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, A, we're the only ones in Chicago who are accepting, you know, donated beds, wool inspect, wool clean. We'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll treat with chemicals. So, you know, mattresses, rails, and then also can never have enough dressers, small kitchen tables, and couches. Oh. See, I would have thought couches, you would, they take up so much room and you just sort of, you know, they're, yeah, as you point out, they're really hard to move around. I would have thought that you would sort of avoid taking lots of couches. No, huh? you can uh, use them. Well, we, we, we pride ourselves on giving a whole complete home of furniture. Uh-huh. And so we're, you know, we're giving out 20 couches a day. <laughs> wow. Uh, and so we want to, we want to make sure we can get, you know, 20 of, at least 20 of, of every item a day as well. We have about, you know, 12 trucks on the road. Uh, picking up furniture as well as delivering it every single day. This is so cool. So the three of you started this nonprofit, and now it's up and running and it's going concern. Are you going to stick with it? Some of you are, have stepped back, I think, from the date. I mean, I know I'm guessing you're not hauling couches anymore. So what's on the horizon? What's the next project? Yeah, I will see. I'm not as strong as I once was. I, I, <laughs> Um, Aww, I'll bet you are. I'll bet you are. Uh, I, 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 I wish. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're committed. We've been able to hire, you know, in the past, you know, six months, we've been able to hire a new senior leadership to be able to expand our capacity and take it. You know, especially you know the honest junk. We think you know the the, the, the you know the world is a, is our oyster, and to actually have a marketing budget for it this year to to do and expand our teams. Um, so we're looking forward, and then you know Griffin, James, and I. You know this this, this is our, our our baby. We will always be involved. Uh, may not be the the day to day, but you know certainly as, as officers and and leading the board as we continue to develop and grow. I mean, I, our goal has has always been to to get the five thousand uh, five thousand homes furnished a year. Last year in twenty twenty two, we did four thousand two hundred homes furnished. And this year we're we're doing it, so we're continuing to to work and uh, uh, continue to grow to serve more people. Mm-hmm. That is so cool. I, I noticed uh, on the Penn website that you got a big award um, as the alumni of the school for having done great, fabulous. What were you there? Keynote people? Like we're bragging about these guys who went through our management school and look what they're doing. How did that feel? 
Um, you know, it, uh, it, it, it was, it's, it's certainly a, you know, a tremendous honor. And when we started this, we had no idea how, you know, how big it was. We knew the need was here and we certainly loved the, you know, the city of Chicago and, and wanted to help, but it, it boy, oh boy, did it take off and just, uh, you know, a school like, like Penn to just, you know, a, a acknowledge that, um, you know, and that's not why we do it. Um, but sure, hey, it, it felt good to be able to tell, you know, to tell our parents. <laughs> uh, that was my next question. Okay, last question for you. Your parents presumably really helped you get through this amazing, and having sent a kid to a similar school, it is not cheap, uh, and, and there you are founding a nonprofit, and your parents, were they as initially supportive? Were they initially supportive, and what do they say now about what you've done? Um, you know, you know, they probably like us when we were first applying, thinking there was a, you know, it was a long shot. <laughs> but uh, you know, being able to to tell them we a got the grant and then to start it and see where it's gone, it, it's certainly been a whirlwind. You know, everybody, um, you know, Jane's parents, my, you know, my my parents, you know, Griffin's parents, Griffin's dad is on, a, on our board, uh, and his mom, you know, they they're both here in in Chicago, have certainly helped us every single part of the way. It, it, it's been truly great. You know, they're certainly proud of us. And, you know, for this satisfaction, that's to be able to create an organization that helps over 10,000 people in, in less than five years. Um, it, it's truly been a whirlwind. I, I think I can, I think it's safe to speak for all of them to say uh, they couldn't have spent, you know, the tuition dollars, you know, better yeah. <laughs> or something else. I think you're right. As the mother, <laughs> as the mother of a, of a kid who is a bit younger than you, but who just finished, I have this conversation with him about, you know, every week or so. He's got the first job after college. I'm like, okay, yeah, but what are you doing for the world? And if you were my kids, I would be like, yeah, look what they're doing for the world. So as a mom, I applaud you. And as a Chicagoan, I'm grateful to you. And as a volunteer, I just can't say enough good things about you. Thank you for being with us, Andrew. I really appreciate it. No, I, I, I appreciate you and, and your work and, and your volunteering. You're without our partner organizations, you know, helping directly, right? We're just movers with a heart of gold. There you go. Well, I mean, those are useful, too, as someone in radio who's had to move a lot. I'm also very grateful to the movers with a heart of gold. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk with you. I hope our paths cross again. 331, we are WCPT. It is the Joan Esposito Show. And if you want to get in touch, either to donate or you know someone who needs to receive uh, it is the Chicago Furniture Bank. Just Google that. You'll find it. 331 WCPT. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk. 820 AM. WCPT Willow Springs. And online at WCPT820.com. Where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. Well... It is WCPT, and it is Joan's show, and we will be um, speaking soon, because I know you just can't wait to hear the latest about the Chicago mayor's race. Lots of dirt being dug up, lots of allegations flying. Uh, We're going to speak with uh, Greg Hines, the columnist for Cranes, which, by the way, if you don't read Cranes Chicago Business... Um, and you, you want to be a, a well-informed progressive and liberal, I think you could do, I, I think you do yourself a favor. It's always important to know what everyone is thinking. If you want to know what the business community of Chicago is thinking, I just treasure that perspective. So 
They're not paying me. I'm a paying subscriber, but I really welcome it. And his columns, too. So he'll be joining us. And I am getting more feedback from you on this 50th Ward um, Aldermanic race. And if you're just joining us, it just hit the Tribune today that um, a Chicago teacher... And this is also scary that this guy was teaching in Chicago classrooms. This 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 man uh, running against um, Deborah. What is it? Silverstein, I guess, is the I'm not in that word. Um, his name and I hope I don't butcher it is Mueze Bawani. He's 35 years old. He's backed by the Chicago Teachers Union. And uh, I think SEIU just gave him money right before this story broke. And just a few years ago on Twitter, he was tweeting vile, racist hate speech. And I'm not just making that up. Calling some white woman a cracker, uh, which is not, you know, I'm sorry, but no. Um, and uh, calling uh, calling uh, for the F. You Zionist scum and F the whole state of Israel. It's a heavily Jewish ward, but it wouldn't matter if it was the Northwest Side Polish Catholic Ward. You just don't get to hate and then go sit on the city council. It'd be interesting to see. Already there are apologists coming from the far left going, well, you know, he's apologized. Well, you know, he he says that he's a different person now. And I would like to know from you, how much do you think people change their stripes? Also, he didn't really apologize. He just, he did and he didn't. You know the I, the sorry, not sorry thing? I'm so sorry, but this is, by the way, a, con- a conversation you may have with friends, family members, where they say, I'm sorry, but, and um, when that happens, in your life, if you're like me, you say, well, if you're really sorry, then there's no but. That's not I'm sorry. That's I'm sorry, but is I'm not sorry. He said he was he was sorry, but he was traumatized. But I love this. He was traumatized by the election. <laughs> really? Oh, well, then I guess that gives you know what? It's interesting to see, by the way. There were a lot of people, the the January 6th people, they were traumatized by the election and they're going to jail. Now, he, this candidate didn't go break into any office buildings, but I'm assuming you take my point here. Just because you're traumatized by an election doesn't mean that the appropriate response is to start hurling hate speech at groups of people you don't like. And, and by the way, why those people? Why those people? And it's got to be, this has got to be hard on the people he was running to represent in the 50th, heavily um, immigrant community from everywhere. And, and as far as I can tell in the 50th, people get along. I spend a lot of time, it's not my ward, but I spend a lot of time there and people seem to get along. The Pakistanis, the Indians, the Russians, the Poles, the New Yorkers, kind of their own nationality. (laughs) Everybody gets along there. And then comes this. And you just think to yourself, how do you run for a major city office with the backing, by the way, of all these groups, many of these groups of people, and then expect that nobody's going to find what you said on Twitter. 
there are whole organizations dedicated to scraping the stuff you've posted off Twitter. There's one, I will not name it, that my kids fervently wish I would not join, have joined, have followed. Because regularly when they're visiting, I come out down to dinner just waving. Did you see this? Waving my phone around. Did you see this? Did you see what somebody said about? Yeah. They would they would prefer me not to be watching what, what I call the rat you out Twitter sites. Say bad stuff on Twitter. There, there's like Twitter's like an onion, right? There are layers. There are the, the crusaders and the haters and the political people. Then there's a layer of people who watch those people. And then there's a layer of people who watch the people who watch the people who are more mainstream news organizations. And they scoop out all the tidbits that they can use. Ooh, look at that. Somebody said something horrible about Latinx people. Look at that. Look, yeah. And they go back and they find it. And can I also say... This guy had closed down that Twitter feed, this candidate, just on the grounds that he apparently is so stupid that he doesn't understand that that stuff stays out there. He shouldn't be elected to anything. If if he hasn't learned as a Chicago teacher, the first thing that you teach your kids in a classroom, which is that if you put it out there on the Internet, honey, it's going to be there for the rest of your life. Don't put it on the Internet if you don't want to see it come across your desk 30 years from now or when you apply for a job or when you apply for college or when you apply to join a nonprofit or when you apply to work with children, whatever it is that you are saying now. Just think as you type, type, type the little words in on your little keyboard. Just think to yourself, would I be upset if someone wrote about this in whatever media we're using 10 years from now? And if the answer is, that's probably not a good idea, then it's probably not a good idea. Mm -hmm. I'm not a genius for that. But the weird part is this guy was teaching school children. This guy was in schools teaching, teaching kids with an attitude like that. I'm glad he has a union because if he didn't have a union, he'd be fired right now. Now or maybe yesterday when the story came out, it's it's horrifying. Your thoughts Would you want your kids taught by somebody? Can you compartmentalize? Can you hate like that and then come into a class and be neutral when you teach? I don't think so. I think you can try to leave your political views. I mean, I happen to know that um, my eldest had a really lovely history teacher who was extremely right wing. But it was fun. I mean, he was really clear. He didn't he he was able to be clear about what his views were because it was a conversation about history and where he came from and what he thought about things. And in a weird way, there was no hate involved. It was just a different philosophical approach to government, kind of how it used to be between the Dems and the Republicans, just a different philosophical approach without the violence and the hate speech and the trolling. And that was actually good for students. It's good for students to have to stand up and say, you know, I, I agree with you, I disagree with you, and here's why. And you would probably be wise to completely object to having only people in a classroom with one point of view. 
But if someone is hateful of a group of people, and we're not talking about a political difference here. If this candidate had said, you know, I object to the policies of this government and anyone who supports them is closed minded, nearsighted, um, uneducated, ignorant even, I, you can deal with that. But to condemn a group of people with ad hominem attacks, that's just not okay. It's just not. And as a city, I'm, I'm amazed at the people who are still sticking up for this guy. Just amazed and disgusted. And there's been one of those some of my best friends kind of a defenses. Oh, and we're still supporting him. He said he was sorry. Can you still support somebody who says those things and says they're sorry? Well, can you? And let me ask, I mean, look, let's be fair. Nobody wants to be judged on their worst behavior ever. Nobody. And we all deserve, every one of us deserves a chance to have our conduct viewed in perspective. That would be fair. So weirdly, it's less the tweets for me and more about the I'm sorry, but... Um, The I'm sorry, but was the nail in the coffin. There is no I'm sorry, but for hatefully attacking a group of people. In his case, two groups, and there may be more where that came from. All right. You know, I'm going to give you a chance to chew on that for a second and then join me at 763-WCPT in the 773 area code. It is Joan Esposito show. Joan will be here Monday. I'm Tori Ryder. That's Tori with you. Ryder like the truck. In for Joan. And by the way, if you want to reach out to me different times, I'm on all the socials. And yes, that is my book. I've had a couple of people ask, did you write that book about right? Yes, I did. The one with the funny looking cover. That's me balancing a fishbowl on my head. Yep. That's me on the cover. Oh, and by the way, a Chicago Indie Press. Let's hear it for Chicago Indie Presses that totally rock. Just about quarter to four, WCPT, live local and progressive. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder on WCPT 820 Live Local and Progressive. In a moment, Greg Hines is going to be joining us to talk about the Chicago mayor's race. But before we hear from him, have you made up your mind? I loved the forum that WCPT held, what, a week ago now? Just over a week ago. Awesome job by the WCPT talk hosts, Santita and Patty and Joan in particular. Um, just remarkable content remarkable what the folks had to say some of the people who are not running in front um, made a huge impression i wonder if if you changed your mind have you made up your mind I, i may get in trouble for this but i haven't made up my mind and this is by the way you you may be in this category have you ever made fun of the people who are undecided voters in presidential races, I hate, I really, it's not nice to hate, but don't you hate undecided voters? Like, oh, I don't know. 
I don't know what I think. And on one hand, on the other hand, and, and I'm like, you undecided voters, I hate you. How can you not be decided? These folks are so radically different. When it's a national election, of course. But here it is. It's a local election. And darn if I'm not an undecided voter. Because each one of these candidates running has some attributes that I really like. Really, there are there are almost none who I think would just be awful candidates, awful mayors. And even the ones that I think would be awful mayors have a couple of good ideas. They do. So if you're still figuring it out, or if you would like to sell me on a particular candidate and you're not the candidate and you don't work for the candidate, I'd be curious to hear from you because truly I am stuck. It's it's almost at the point where I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to walk into the polling place and go, uh, uh, uh. And I don't usually get like that in, in Chicago elections unless it's a judge thing where I've got my list I don't think I've ever gone to to the polls undecided uh, about anything except judges when I have my list. And I'll tell you the story. Um, it was a couple of elections ago. I went to my local early voting location, and there were two judges who were both endorsed by all the good organizations that you look at, you know, the bar and uh, qualified by this and super qualified by that. And there was one race where, wouldn't you know it, you just can't make up your mind. And in front, at the proper distance, because they can't be right up in your polling place, a gentleman came up to me and he said, I can't remember his name offhand, we'll just call him Joe Bob Smith, comes up and says, hi, I'm Joe Bob Smith and I'm running for judge and I'd like your vote. And I said, oh, Joe Bob Smith, it happens that it's between you and this other person for this same seat and both of you are are uh, rated well qualified, but you asked for my vote, so you're going to get it. And he got my vote because he asked for it. And my follow-up question to you, if you're figuring out whether you're going to vote one way or another for mayor is, are, are you answering the door when people are ringing your bell? Hi, I'm running for alderman. Hi, I'm running for mayor. Whose door knocked you? And have they made a good impression on you? And has anybody changed your mind at your front door? We had um, a house. We have a household with several people in it. And I did an early ballot in the last um, state legislative uh, contest. And I regretted it because the competing candidate from my party, the Democratic Party, came to my door and I liked him better. And I was like, oh, that sucks. I just sent in my, sucks to be me. I just sent in the ballot. But my procrastinating spouse and my kids voting by mail from their respective universities could say, oh, okay, you know, mom, dad, you think this is the most impressive person? All right, we'll be swayed by you. But I blew it. So I'd love to hear from you about any of those things. Have you ever been swayed by the door? Who's come to your door? Are you undecided? How does that feel? Are you embarrassed about being undecided? Do you feel you have an abundance of riches? I tell you, one of the things, my favorite candidate for mayor, possibly, I don't think has a hope in hell of winning, has no money, haven't seen a single piece of literature. So I'm like, well, if I vote for this person, I'm throwing my vote out the window. 
Why would I do? Why would I throw my vote out the window? Why would you throw your vote out the window? Would you vote for somebody on principle where you even felt that he or she or they had no chance? Let's go to Debbie in Old Town. Uh, Debbie, welcome. You're on WCPT. Thanks for calling. Hi. I love when you fill in for Joan. You, 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 you handle the conversation so beautifully. Thank well, you. Thank you. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a privileged position to be able to fill in for Joan, so I'm glad to be here. Yes. Yeah, she's, she's big shoes to fill. She sure. is. Yes, she is. Um, well, I actually went to the mayoral forum. And I was very impressed with several of the candidates. Um, I was very impressed with with Brandon Johnson. Mm-hmm. I was very impressed with with Sophia King, who I did not know. And I was also impressed with um, Cam. Is it Buckner? Yes, Cam Buckner. Yeah. Yeah, those were the three people that stood out in my mind after, you know, Willie Wilson just, like, blew my mind. Forget him. <laughs> With the gun situation, it was like, what are you talking so, about? But even, even if you don't like his views on guns and hunting people down like rabbits, you got to hand it to him. Getting rid of the red light cameras would make this city a much nicer place to live. Well, that was what you said when you said about, you know, that some of the candidates had good things to say, yeah. but overall, yeah. they just didn't get you, yeah. you know, right. and, and, and yes, that's correct. But I think that that is also up for discussion, and I don't think that that thought will go away if someone else is elected. But what I loved about what Sophia King had to say Many things that she had to say. I thought she was absolutely terrific. Um, when she talked about getting um, retired police officers to do, you know, hiring them part time, like they, just, I didn't know they did this in other cities. And she was very knowledgeable about things like that, where they hire them part-time and they have them come in to do jobs that the police on the street don't need to fill. You know, they they need to be doing more important things. So this will free them up. She just had a lot of really good ideas, and I think she'd be a really good negotiator and... Well, it sounds like it sounds like you've just talked yourself into a vote for her. But now let me ask you, because she had all these great ideas, but she's underfunded and not considered to be polling in the top three or four. What do you do with that love of somebody that you think just doesn't have? I mean, I'm putting I don't want to put too many words in your mouth. Do you think she has a snowball's chance in hell? No, that's the reason I'm so frustrated about it. That's why I went. That's why I I I went to. Um, well, I don't think Cam Buckner does either. That's why I went to Brandon Johnson because I think that he had some really great ideas, and he's very. Um, I, I think he's he's moving up in polls, and he's very visible, and he's. He sounds like he would do a great job, too. What about experience? How important is it to you that somebody has leadership experience? And, and do you feel that that your candidate of choice now uh, has sufficient leadership experience? This is in my just in my opinion. And this is just speaking for myself. I think one of the problems that Lori Lightfoot has had is that leading is not something she's done with a lot of of grace. To put it mildly, no, 
she, well, plus the fact when you talk about experience and you talk about um, uh, coming from <clears throat> a whole different genre, like she was, you know, not not in politics. And I think that that is a major downfall. I want someone that understands and knows politics. Oh, you, you know, are so and, smart and, to say that. Can I just give you like a small round of applause and tell you why, Debbie? I think that is so that is so sharp because there are a lot of people who run for office. And this is what I call I can fly the plane syndrome. There are people who run for office on the basis that they've never had anything to do with the office. And people who want to be talk show hosts because their friends like to listen to them talk. Um, and it's to me, it's like it would be like if you said, you know, I fly all the time. I, I get on the plane. I sit in the seat. What's to flying? You come up, you, you go up, you come down. Let me fly the plane. I can fly the plane as well as anybody else around here. And there's this real disregard for experience and professionalism. And politics is a real profession. Some people can just, I mean, even people who are pretty good at it now, when they start, they tend to put a foot really wrong. But if you're elected to Congress and you don't know what you're doing and you say a bunch of stupid stuff when you get there, you're just one of hundreds. But if you get elected mayor of Chicago, you have some real power there and you don't have the, you don't have the rope to play with to just do a bunch of stupid stuff because you don't know anything about how this really works. Exactly. And and one of the phrases I really like when listening to what candidates say, I would be ready to hit the ground running the day I came into office because I know how it works. And I think that that is the key to a lot of it. You know, uh, great ideas, of course, but the, knowing how the system works and how to work into it, I think, is key. And look at look at what, what, what I call him Ruiner. Look what he did to our to our city. Look at what all. <laughs> I've never heard him called ruiner, but it's pretty good. I'll t- I think that for that alone, I would have loved this phone call. But everything you've said has been really, really worth hearing. And I thank you so much for calling today, Debbie. Good to hear from you. Uh, we will shortly be joined from an expert on the subject of the mayor's race. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. Joan will be back on Monday, 4.04. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan, keeping the seat warm. Don't forget, Patty will be in at 5.2 hours of Patty Vasquez. Um, she will drive it home for you, double the Patty. So uh, have you decided? We were just asking the question. Do you know who you're vote for whom you are voting? My English teacher would be so proud of that right now. Do you know for whom you will be voting? I know who can help you figure it out. Um, we'd like to welcome Greg Heinz from Crane's Chicago Business. He is, it's, it's a column I enjoy reading. Thanks for joining us on WCPT. Greg, welcome. Hey, Tori, how you doing? I am well. Um, what do you make of the, of the flying dirt that is now uh, making its way around our websites, phones, Twitter feeds? What, what do you make of the uh, mayoral race? Today, as things now stand, 
Yeah, there there is lots of dirt, and it's been uh, it's, it seems to have expanded in the last week. It tells me uh, that uh, we have a pretty close race where nobody has really broken it out away from the pack. There are uh, uh, at least three, uh, probably four, uh, maybe five uh, folks in the field who all have a, a decent chance to get uh, to get into the into the runoff to get to be the top two people on, on February twenty eighth uh, who will go into the finals in, in April. You know, when things get close, uh, people try to, uh, somebody starts to sneak out ahead a little bit. All their opponents try to drag them back. That's called negative campaigning. Well, let's have some fun with negative campaigning, shall we? Um, because I enjoy it. A uh, little schadenfreude, you know, it's always always kind of an <laughs> indulgence. Can you, pardon me? What was it? Eh? Yes, it is. Blood well, sports, you know, eh? this is one of the pleasures of living in Chicago, really, you know, we we like our politics and our stakes bleeding. Um, there we go. Our sports our sports teams uh, don't do very well, so we need to have our politicians. I would say, I would say, and as a not particularly sports aficionado, I I get it out of my system right about now. So, new dirt of the week: Jamal Green so supposedly steered some COVID money. Can, can you can you distill that? That was stories in the Sun Times today. Yeah, I mean, they say that uh, that he's associated with somebody who sent some some COVID relief money uh, to a place it, it shouldn't go. Uh, he says that his his involvement was uh, incidental and that he really didn't, didn't do anything. But the, the truth of the matter is, a lot of COVID relief money was uh, was misused. Uh, one of the scandals in the state is how many hundreds of millions of dollars in uh, false unemployment claims were filed uh, by various people. We're never going to see that money back, but we're going to pay for it. But uh, Mr. Green, Mr. Green has a uh, a little bit of a uh, involvement in that. Uh, if I were him, I would I would I would almost say thank you because the Sun Times went out of their way to zap him. Maybe that means he's getting some votes that we don't know about. Ah, that's there's a positive. There there's a whistle whistle while in what is it they say? Whenever I feel alone, I whistle a happy tune. That's a whistle a happy tune for Jamal. Um, but of course, I have to circle back to your claim that we're never going to see any of this money. Governor Pritzker has been uh, very vocal about clawing back some of the COVID testing fraud money that that uh, family from where are they from Arlington Heights or someplace with a garage full of Bugattis and Ferraris that they were proudly claiming they bought with testing money. I mean, we're never going to see any of that either, you think? Well, uh, if I if I if I said nothing, that's probably a little bit of exaggeration. But I don't think we're going to see very money. Okay, very well, much. I'm I'm all uh, for I mean, exaggeration. That that works for me. I'll go with this, this. This begins to recede into the distant past pretty quickly now. If if you don't catch him in the first couple of years, you're not going to catch him in ten years. Huh. I, ho- I hope you're wrong, but I fear that you're right. Okay, so Jamal Green now has a little mud on his, I am a servant of the people. I am as pure as they come. I just list- live to serve the nonprofit sector. He's a little dusty now. Um, what about Paul Vallis, who was starting to rack up? Uh, Tunney supported, through support to him. The Tribune's editorial page, I don't know if anybody gives a, a Nat's wing about that anymore, but uh, especially since they, they kind of gutted their editorial page, if memory serves. Um, but they've endorsed Vallis. Uh, what do you make of the latest allegations about Vallis and his uh, his pro or anti-choice stand, depending on who's throwing the dirt at the moment. 
this one I take a little more seriously. Um, this is, uh, does it look like it? This is really a fight in particular over lakefront voters who are kind of untethered at the moment uh, from, you know, the, 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 the first war, the 42nd war, the 43rd war, the 44th war, to some degree, the, the, the 47th. They're home to a lot of good liberal progressive voters, particularly on social questions like abortion. And um, with Lori Lightfoot not being very popular there now because of the high crime rates, they're looking for another candidate. At least that's what the politicians there tell me. Well, I am I am a lakefront liberal voter. I have to. Well, I mean, you can walk to it from there. I'm an uptown resident, so yeah, I'm in that bucket. Yeah, and and, and the two folks who've, who've been really trying to position themselves to go after that are Chuy Garcia and Paul Vallis. Uh so Tui has now come up with something to uh, try to uh, put some distance between Mr. Ballas and and uh, some of those voters, and he may he may score. Um, he, he dug up an old tape of an interview uh, Ballas gave about fourteen fifteen years ago to uh, to a conservative commentator up on uh, up on the North Shore where they got to talking about abortion, and, and Mr. Ballas allows it. Well, you know, I really don't I really not in favor of abortion. I'm basically a Republican at heart. Well, boom, uh, fifteen years later. That surfaces, and Joe Garcia and his allies are trying to say, "Hey, this issue is really important to a lot of a lot of voters, particularly women, but not always women." Uh, and uh, you know, if you want somebody that's going to take abortion rights, Paul Vallis isn't, isn't your man. Mr. Vallis's side of this is that, hey, what he was really saying is that, hey, as per my Greek religion, Greek Orthodox religion, uh, I personally am not in favor of abortion, but publicly, I'm going to uh, I'm going to support it. Always have. Um, we'll see whether it. Uh, whether it uh, sticks or not, but it's it's something Paul Bells has explained to voters on the lakefront that he didn't have to explain a couple of days ago. Well, it's it, to to follow on what you just said. He went on this Republican conservative podcast, and and I've been as much interested in people's excuses today as I've been in what they actually said because Vallis's excuse was, well, that was the audience for the podcast, which of course begs the question, so do you have any of these principles that are firmly held or does it just depend on who's on the other side of your microphone? Uh, that is a uh, pretty good question. Um, I think uh, we're going to, I think, I suspect a lot of reporters are going to look now through Paul's career and see if he has followed up these words with actions uh, that would tend to hurt uh, uh, women that need to get an abortion. He's been school superintendents all over the country. Did he, did he what were his policies? Uh, did he, uh, did he, uh, uh, move to prevent, uh, uh, health insurance from covering abortion services and health care family services? Uh, or was this a, just a loose comment? If it was just a loose comment, it would probably pass with a win. But if somebody finds that he actually acted consistent with that, he got a real problem. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I would piggyback on to that to say not only is it an issue of whether he's thrown uh, any barriers into um, students, some of whom are of age, uh, into their path to seeking a legal abortion. But I'd also be curious to know um, when he's been running these school districts, if he made it difficult or easier for health clinics to serve student populations, because, of course, we all know that the the big hypocrisy of the pro-life close quote quote uh, close quote movement is that they not only oppose women's right to terminate a pregnancy once they have one that they wish to terminate, they also oppose their uh, access to 
care that would prevent those pregnancies in the first place. So, yeah, uh, all very pertinent questions. How yeah, is anybody? Uh, so who 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 else has some? Oh, wait a minute, the chewy dirt, uh, which is now aging. The dirt on chewy is is old dirt now. It's almost archaeological. You could almost carbon date the dirt on chewy. Um, and I was waiting to hear when those first negative ads came out that he had taken money from. I can't even remember who, who from whom did they say he took money that was that was bad that he shouldn't. Sam Bankman Fried. Sam Bankman Fried. Mr. Oh, M- Mr. Home Confinement. Mr. Polly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that guy. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't laugh, but as someone who mocked the crypto buyers like from the beginning, I just I. I can't see it happening to a nicer group of people. Um, But you write for a business publication, and I've been watching um, some of Crane's articles about crypto, and it must be fun for you to sit there and and watch the Sam Bankman-Fried meltdown from the business pages. how well, from a from a from, from a strictly sporting perspective, yeah. Uh, from the perspective of people who've lost their their investments, no. This is this is not pretty. Um, let me explain what the, what what. There's two pieces of dirt. Okay. On, uh, on Chewy. Okay. Um, the, the first one is that when he ran for re-election in his new district this summer, mm-hmm. um, it was unopposed. There was nobody there. But nonetheless, a pack that was almost fully funded by Mr. Bankman Fried dropped $200,000 into ads and flyers and mailers saying, oh, Chewy's a great guy, vote for him. Well, why would, why would they do that if he was unopposed? Well, it just so happened that Mr. Garcia serves on the House Financial Services Committee, which just so happens to, to be the case that they regulate crypto, um, including Mr. Bankman frieds business. No, no, Mr. Garcia has insisted, oh, no, it had nothing to do with that. It's just it's just that he and, and, and Bankman Fried shared an interest in, in COVID prevention measures, and that was perhaps behind it. Um, you can accept that or not, not accept it, but it, it raises some questions. Um, the other one that probably has a little more legs is his connection to uh, to Mike Madigan, the former speaker. Oh, uh, yeah. Former, mm. former chairman of the Illinois Democratic Party. Um, the Tribune kind of ham-handedly suggested uh, about a week ago that uh, Garcia's name had been mentioned in connection with the uh, with the federal uh, uh, charges against... Uh, As an unindicted co-conspirator or something, to borrow the Watergate. Well, they kind, of implied, they yes. kind of implied that, but if you read the fine print, all this comes out of a, of a, out of a, out of a federal... Uh, filing in which they literally just said that Garcia, they didn't even mention, they said hey, a congressman's name got mentioned in the course of a conversation between two of these principals on an entirely different subject. Uh-huh. And, there was no, and there was no proof at all that Mr. Garcia was involved. Now, did they mention it? Yeah. When the feds mentioned something in, in, a, uh, in, a, in a proper, you have to ask, well, why did they do that? But at this point, there's absolutely nothing to tie Mr. Garcia to any of this. And I call it pretty much a, of a cheap shot. It sounds like a nothing um, burger to hear you tell it. A big nothing it burger. Does. Yeah. It does. But what's not a nothing burger is that is that Mr. Garcia and Mr. Madigan had a long-standing political alliance, a detente of sorts. Well, find uh, me a Democrat in Illinois who didn't have to kiss that ring once or twice. Well, that is that is what that is exactly what Mr. Garcia explains. He says, "Hey, I got to get stuff done." He was Speaker of the House. You know, just because I swim with, with sharks doesn't mean I am a shark. Interesting way to put it. Um, 
but uh, this alliance was, was really considerable. They didn't run candidates against each other. Uh, Garcia's forces didn't go into Madigan's 13th Ward, uh, which, is, which is right next to Garcia's district. And I think part of it was actually in Garcia's congressional district. In turn, uh, in turn uh, Madigan didn't go after Garcia's allies a little bit further north in the city. So, you know, was this a detente plus? It's certainly, it's certainly willing to, it's certainly a fair question. It's a fair thing to ask about. Um, it just, know, it, to hold you up for a second, this, this, this is where I think you, you see a generational divide. There are a group of Chicagoans who are, who are used to this. And it, it was, as you point out, this is how you got stuff done. And you, you know, if you were going to march around going, I am, I am super pure and I have nothing to do with these people who make backroom deals and negotiate in ways that maybe aren't, you know, the kind of thing you would want to, to tell your kids kindergarten class, then you can run for judge or maybe some religious leader, but you're not going to get much done serving an electoral district in Chicago or in some cases. Is Illinois, so there's a younger generation of voters, I think, who who want to see it differently, and I, that's what I I think may be happening with Chewy. What what would you say? You know, you, you know, you have a point. Um, uh, I would point out that a somewhat similar kind of relationship. You don't go after me. I don't go after you. We we live our own lives. Uh, existed for many years between former Mayor Richard M. Daley and Barack Obama. Yeah. Center and later, later United States Center. They both operated in the same same uh, big playground, but they managed to avoid getting in fights with each other. Um, now, Manning is a little more toxic uh, than than Rich Daly. Uh, we'll see if it if it if it if it uh, uh, works with voters. But Lori Lightfoot has certainly tried to make a big issue out of it. Has been in all of her ads for quite a while. Yeah, it's really interesting when when um, people use the the, the Madigan card. Um, because for so many years, people were so eager to have earned his favor. And I think any of us who've been voting in this town for any amount of time, um, it, it just, like, oh, now, now that everybody's piling on, oh, now you are, you're opposed to him and everything he stands for. And if we have any kind of, if we have any institutional memory of our own as a body of voters, you just sort of look at the balance sheet and say, well, that, that evens that out. We'll toss it. At least that's... What's, what's memory? I don't, I don't, I don't remember nothing. <laughs> well, I still remember that John Hyatt song. We have short memories. Um, but we do, I guess. Um, I'm sad about the whole Madigan thing, personally, because I used to have to explain for a long time. Um, if, have you ever lived outside of Chicago for a period of time and had to explain Chicago to people? Yes, I know what you mean. And so you have to explain that this is how you get stuff done. I mean, whatever analogy you use, the sausage factory or, you know, any any of these. You, you, know, you know, you know, you're right, but I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you just a little bit. Um, it is how you get stuff done. But the fact that we all say that this is how you get stuff done kind of says and therefore we're going to tolerate it and we're not going to clean it up. Yeah, I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying it's interesting to see the people who were perfectly happy to participate in that system say, well, you you can't blame me. This is the system, you know, but now, now, I'm now, I'm purist-driven. But maybe that's one of the reasons why we continue to have corruption decade after decade, generation after generation, because we don't, as a people, just put our foot down and say, I don't care if there's ways... 
if that's the way we do business here, we're not going to do business that way anymore. Well, I think that's sort of how we elected Barack Obama. That's kind of what we went for there, I, I think. Um, but looking at the top contenders through that lens of who was the least tolerant of your typical amount of sausage making, of the top contenders, who would you say is has the cleanest hands? Oh, that's a good question. Um that was uh, I'm new. I'm going to drain the swamp. That was Lightfoot's pitch four years ago. I don't think she's done a very. I don't think she's. Well, I'm not a Lightfoot fan. What can I tell you? <laughs> she can point. She can. She can point to some stuff uh, ethically. I think it's legitimate. Uh, we have better laws. Uh, on the other hand, she's done a series of things that aren't terribly transparent. She promised to be a very transparent mayor. Uh, well, and then she was a little too transparent. You remember the media day where, you know, no white people were allowed? I, I just... Well, you... uh, that, that's a subject for another day. What I was thinking more was this new Commonwealth Edison deal she just put on the... Uh, 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 yeah. or the Or the NASCAR race that's coming to downtown Chicago that uh, that nobody really had a chance to answer any questions about. She announced it and wham, bam, we're going to do it. Or even the casino. Work. Ah, okay. That was my next question. How clear has she been about the casinos? I'm less worried about the NASCAR thing because that'll be in and out of the city. But the casinos are going to be around making our lives difficult for a long time. Uh, there was a lot of reason to think that she and her team kind of had favors from the, from the beginning, and it wasn't a totally open process. She okay. denies that. She denies it. Hold up right there. We're going to we're gonna ask you to wait, if you would, and, and uh, more in a moment. You're listening to Greg Hines. He's a columnist at Crane's Chicago Business, and I, I, I will have more questions for him in just a moment. WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. Hey, Chicago. I'm Rick Smith, host of The Rick Smith Show. And I want to hear from you every weeknight from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on WCPT AM 820. Call in and be heard as we focus on the issues most important to working America. The Rick Smith Show, where working people come to talk. Weeknights, 8 to 10 p.m. right here on WCPT AM 820, home of Chicago's progressive talk. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. Joan's back Monday. I'm Tory Ryder in for Joan. We are joined again by Greg Heinz of Crane's Chicago Business. Publication I like so much. He writes a column. You should read it. Uh, we're kind of dissecting the Chicago mayor's race. Uh, Greg, what what else should we be alert for as we start to get closer to the wire? Early voting now going on. What can we expect to see and what should we watch for? Um, the turnout has been kind of light so far uh, in early voting and mail voting. Um, if uh, if that's an indication of what's to come, uh, we could have some really interesting results. Um, when you have this big of a field, there's nine names on the ballot, it's, it's very hard for people to focus. Uh, and I think, I suspect there's going to be a tendency by a lot of voters to just throw up their hands and say, I can't figure this out. Wake me up in April when there's only two people. Um, huh, that's uh, interesting that- because I, I would have, I'm, I'm with you on that can't figure this out, but my thought would be Maybe people are hoping that someone will drop out and make it easier for them. And how come no one's dropped out? 
because uh, I think uh, they all think they still have a chance. Really? If you look, if you look, I think most of them do. If you look, at, if you look at what happened four years ago, last time, in other words, a bigger field then, but it only took. Sixteen percent to get it into into the into the runoff. Good point. Sixteen percent. Yeah, that's nothing. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't that's thought of like, it that way. That's like three or four strong wards. <laughs> so I think each of them is is hoping that their own little segment of the population is going to be really energized by them. Maybe it come from a big family and all the nieces and uncles turn out the vote. Well, yeah, we had in our in our aldermanic race last time. It came down to the wire, and it was twenty five votes. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're right. That I had not thought about it that way. I'd watch that. I'd tell you another little interesting wrinkle to watch uh, for political junkies. Um, Paul Vallis, if he's gonna if he's gonna get into the runoff, and right now he's in a pretty good position because uh, he's the only white guy candidate, white guy in the ballot. Like it or not, that's how some people vote. Whereas there's a seven, uh, uh, six. Uh, African-American candidates, so that vote is kind of split up. Uh, why, he needs to do well, Vallis, uh, on the Northwest and Southwest side. Uh, but interestingly, he's losing some votes out there to Willie Wilson. No. Right. No. Right. Is it the hunt them like rabbits thing? Is that what it is? Or? Hunt, them like, hunt them like rabbits, Willie Wilson. No. Willie Wilson is, Willie Wilson is, a, is, a, is a Donald Trump fan. And Trump voters are definitely conservative. Vallis and Wilson are probably the most conservative people in the field. Uh, some people who might vote for Vallis might instead vote for uh, vote for uh, for Wilson because they say, "Hey, he's a Trump guy." And then you know, there's something about the Trump people who can who can. Uh, so so uh, you're you're looking at the black in their policies, but then they vote for a black man. They say, "See, I'm I'm innocent." You're looking at the Northwest side, then not the Lakefront liberals. That's what you're talking about when you're saying North side. But but the police uh, unions have supported Vallis. Is that correct? The police union has voted has supported Vallis, which is another impediment Vallis has to has to explain away on the life front. Um, that those usually don't fit very well together. Uh, the the head of the uh, of FOP John Cotton Zara has has sent any number of things uh, just to, that are outrageous. I mean, for instance, when the city required uh, COVID uh, vaccination. Oh yeah. He's, uh, he, he, he said, well, it's like, who are you, Hitler trying to force people into the showers? <sighs> yeah, I have a question. For, as long as I have you here, and, and as long as you brought up John Canzara, um, it, it, would you say the rank and file are anything like him? Is he really representative of his uh, of the people he purportedly represents? Well, uh, they've elected some interesting uh, presidents of FOP in recent years. Um there is a he Kanjar does have to run for re-election too, and one of his opponents was quoted in the in the Sun Times uh, on San Francisco Spielman show the other day, is saying that uh, while I agree with Kanjar's goals, he needs to quit offending people with these outrageous, out of a uh, far right field kind of statements. So maybe we've seen the limits of of uh, of extraordinary conservative populism in the in the police department. I don't know. I, I mean, I have to. Uh, as someone who uh, supports her police and as grateful for them, I just can't believe that the police I support are the same police who think that this guy is just a swell representative. As we say, those of us who are dog owners, who are it's a good representative of the breed. I just don't think he's I don't think he's a good representative of the breed. Um, and I'm always surprised at the at the support that he seems to have. It's it's 
completely. It is a puzzlement to me. How, how that happens. Well, we're going to see. I mean, we, we may, if I'm back here filling in for Joan and you're willing, I'd love to talk with you again because I just loved all of the the excavation you did of the campaign and whose participation. Uh, do, do you want to look in your crystal ball right now and tell me who you think the two uh, people who make it to the next Final. Go. I, uh, one, I'd be happy to appear anytime you want. Uh, it's fun. Two, I can't. I think it's. I think it is. Uh, conventional wisdom right now is that uh, is that the three front runners are uh, Paul Vallis and Lori Lightfoot and Tui Garcia, and that two to three of them will make it. I'm not convinced that uh, it, the field is that narrow. I'd keep an eye out for uh, from Brandon Johnson, uh, the county commissioner. Um, uh, he, he has the support of, of, of populist, very progressive groups, uh, the same folks who, who elected uh, uh, Delia Ramirez, the congresswoman from the northwest side, instead of uh, Alderman Gil Villegas, which most people expected. They always tend to be underpolled. I keep an eye out for him. He's got a lot of money and some some. Uh, solid support out there, and I wouldn't forget Willie Wilson. Uh, he has his he has his fans. Uh, he says some outrageous stuff, like his uh, we ought to go after criminals like a like a dog after a, after a, after a rabbit. Yeah, it's not, it's, how, not how I would not how I would phrase not it. how and he doubles down on it every chance he gets because then people but talk about him. Fans, he's on TV. Yeah, uh, so I think I think that the, I think the. Uh, the final two will come out of that five, but which of them is going to be, I can't tell. Well, I really appreciate your insight, and uh, you've made me think about a lot of stuff that I may not have wanted to consider, but now I will. So I'm sure you've done the same for um, the listeners, too. Thanks so much. Greg Hines from Cranes, Chicago Business on WCPT. It's the Joan Esposito Show. We are live, local, and progressive. I'm Tori Ryder, in for Joan. This is Chicago's Progressive Talk, 820 AM, WCPT Willow Springs, and online at WCPT820.com, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are Chicago's Progressive Talk. It's 435. Don't forget, Patty Vasquez in at 5. Joan comes back Monday. I want to thank Lady B for making all the buttons work today and Julia Shu for helping me book the show and uh, Matt for inviting me and you all for participating. If you haven't heard, Dr. Phil, the, uh, one, of, one of Oprah's many gifts to us, And I use the term advisedly. Dr. Phil just retired or announced he will be retiring from his daytime gig this year. He hasn't stopped yet. But I was looking over some of the things that he has done on the air. And uh, to confess, I don't watch Dr. Phil a lot. But I remember seeing his interview with Sinead O'Connor. And I remember looking at a video of the train wreck that was his um, interview with uh, Shelley um, Duvall. And I just thought to myself, what what good did this man actually do for people, people with mental illness, people with trauma? Uh, because the bio of him it would imply that he's this this great psychological savior of the TV viewing public. 
Well, at that point, you want to bring in somebody who really knows what she's talking about. And it wasn't just looking through my favorite tool, the speculator. Fortunately, I know such a person. Her, her name is Hannah Bennett. She is a licensed marriage family therapist and advanced candidate psychoanalyst of the Lacan School. And I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. She's in private practice. And I'd like to introduce you to her now. Hannah, welcome. You're on WCPT. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you for having me. Um, when have, Had you heard that Dr. Phil was retiring from his gig at all? Oh, no, I had not. Well, he's leaving, and you uh, you probably get some of the fallout from these people who come in for therapy after they watch TV therapy. Um, what do you think of these TV therapy dispensing experts? What do you make of them? Well, you know, I thought that your question to me um, via the email was particularly interesting. Do they cause harm? Yeah. Do they help people or do they harm people? Exactly. Right. So I just, I want to, I've been thinking about this. Um, So the fundamental principle of psychotherapeutic treatment from its origins going back to Freud, the father of our profession, um, is privacy and confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So in order for a psychotherapeutic treatment to have um, curative effect, it's necessary that um, both the, that it occurs in a private and confidential space. So here we have here we have Dr. Phil staging for the, a live audience and for a televised audience um, a question of uh, importance to the person who of psychological importance to the person who is being interviewed. Okay, so already we have a situation where there is a potential for shame and humiliation mm-hmm. and um, so immediately from the get-go the, the stage of the situation is um, is in question makes sense so is there mm-hmm. any forum that he is he drives me crazy when I read about what he's done um, I don't know if you're familiar with somebody named Dr. Drew, who is an MD, who used to work with a a talk show host named Adam Carolla. And together, I thought that given the they did beautiful work on the phone where people had a certain amount of anonymity. You didn't know who they were or where they were calling from. And they actually did good things for people. But then, in my opinion, Drew, Dr. Drew went over to the dark side and started exploiting people's um, addiction illnesses for fame, glory, and money, and and flying in the face of everything that is needed for those ill people, which, as you correctly point out, at the very minimum should be privacy. So what what do you make of, and, and let me add on to that, I think part of the illness of some of these folks that, that these TV quote, close quote, therapists engage in, and the vulnerability of some of them is that they have, they have no ability to protect themselves. They, they're, they're desperate. Um, mm. and, and, and so 
whenever I see this, I just think this is this is just it. It's like watching their illness be. It's like watching someone take a beating in public. You don't want to look, and mm-hmm. and you feel pain, and you. I don't know. Do they do any good at all? Does anyone ever look at these shows that you're aware of and say, "Okay, uh, what happened to the particular person being interviewed was horrific," but because I saw this, I see that I too have been through X or Y or Z, and I'm going to go get help. Does does that ever happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it hasn't happened in my practice, but I just I just want to take this possibility for a moment as a hypothetical. Okay. So somebody's watching um, a person move through Doctor Phil's um, charlatanism, and they say, "Okay, uh, I I identify with what this person has gone through. Let me go and get some help." Okay. Well, um, if that person does indeed go into psychotherapy as a result of, of uh, watching this. That's one thing. But if the person experiences a kind of a catharsis via an identification with the person who has been ex- uh, dealing with Dr. Phil, then, then, and, and and then has a sense that they've healed something, then I think we're really dealing with um, illusion. Oh wow, I hadn't even thought about that. So there's a risk as you as you see this that you know my name is Susie Jones and I am being interviewed by Dr. Phil for my surviving of abuse as a child and somebody watching me Susie Jones says, "Oh yeah, I went through that abuse and she said everything I think and feel and now I've cleared that up." Is that is that what you're explaining as a risk here? Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. People feel like they can just clean yeah. away that. And of course, logically, that doesn't make any sense. It's like, well, my next door neighbor cleaned their house and I saw them throw out the garbage and therefore my house is clean. Uh, I wish it worked like that. I have some clean neighbors. Yeah. That would be nice. Um, but no. So so who are the I mean, what is the most? Let, let me let me let me scratch that question. Ask you something different. Have you watched any of these public meltdowns of public figures? Have you seen any any of them and and watched with horror? Uh, uh, Sinead O'Connor was the one that broke my heart a lot. Um, and and if so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm sorry, you were going to say anything. Is there anything different from the way that public personalities, famous people interact in these settings with just, you know, we found this person by reaching out to our random audience to ask if you've ever had a problem with whatever it is? Um, Because, well, do you think there's a difference between the way that celebrities engage with these kinds of, you know, red table talk, Dr. Drew, Dr. Phil, all, all these therapeutic, supposedly clearing the air and treatment things on television, as opposed to we're just going to take somebody that we found here in the suburbs of Chicago and bring them in? Mm, that's a good question. Um, uh, well, you know, it, to, to the degree that the celebrity um, is... Uh, engaged in in um, aggrandizing his or her narcissism, then um, I think it's really really problematic. But I, it, but what I 
I, I want, I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to just kind of diverge slightly because there were a couple of points that I wanted to make um, about the the dynamic of the stage setting. Okay. So is that okay? So you sure. Have, you have an individual who who's sitting on the stage, celebrity or not. And um, and there's an audience, and there's Dr. Phil, and there's a pointed question, you know, or there's a statement, you know, you are here because blah blah blah. Is that correct? Blah blah blah. Okay. And then Dr. Phil begins, or whoever it is, begins to hammer the person in in order to get that person to admit or get to some kind of kernel of their issue. And and that, first of all, is, um, I would say, is malpractice because uh, in, a, in a traditional psychotherapeutic setting, you want to um, provide the space for the person to move at their own pace towards some kind of uh, awareness. So there's humiliation involved, but... Why? But there's a problem with the individual and maybe the culture as a whole presuming that shame and humiliation publicly are necessary to lead to some sort of a confession that might be necessary, that then leads to some, that they think is necessary, and that, that, that then leads to some sort of a catharsis, both huh. for the audience as well as for the individual. This is so helpful. I would just want to stop and thank you because this is so helpful. I think a lot of people think exactly what you just described, that part of healing is what you've just shown us is actually not healing. It's if I if I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but the process that we're being shown as a healing process is actually a damaging process. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think you do. Okay, all right. So keep on going. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so um, in American culture and in American psychology, in all of its various practices, um, but particularly in California, I think there has been this um, idea that if you can uh, emote sufficiently, emote thoroughly, um, cus- Give give oneself uh, a catharsis of uh, and then uh, feel somehow cleansed and uh, emptied of the of the emotion or the affect that that somehow uh, unburdens you of whatever uh, the illness the mental illness the the psychopathology is huh. and this this is simply false. And there's another thing that is that basically is what keeps Dr. Phil and all the all the co-practitioners of this phony baloney psychotherapy going as they feel like if you cry hard enough in front of the camera, um, you, you have achieved some higher plane of mental health. And then this sort of gives license to other people to bully and badger and berate people perhaps in private settings and go, well, okay, I'll just make you cry hard enough and then we'll get past Mm. your, you know, your drug addiction, your mental health, which actually, from the little I know about it, is exactly part of the disease. 
Right, 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 exactly. So interesting. I mean, Dr. Phil isn't the first. I mean, our beloved Carl Rogers um, was one of the first to 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 stage uh, and film uh, a, a psychotherapy session, and he did this with the um, the film. The film is called the the Three Glorias. So Gloria is a woman. Wait, I'm going to hold you up because I want to I want to hear about this, and I've got some stuff I've got to do. Can you hold on? Yes. Great. Hold on. You're hearing Hannah Bennett. She is a licensed marriage family therapist and advanced candidate psychoanalyst in the Lacan School. And we're talking about uh, Dr. Phil retiring from daytime TV and whether he actually helps people or hurts people and all of his frequent flyer similar shrinks on TV, whether they actually are doing anybody any good. More in a moment on WCPT. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Joan Esposito's show. I'm Tori Ryder in for Joan today. Joan comes back Monday. Patty Vasquez will be with you just after five. With you now and with me now, Hannah Bennett, licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice, also advanced candidate for psychoanalyst with the Lacan School. The Lacan School talking about whether uh, people like the retiring from daytime TV Dr. Phil and all his ilk. Uh, I reserve special hatred, by the way, for Dr. Drew because I know he's capable of so much good. And it bothers me so much what he's done with, with all of his expertise. Um, but I, I, uh, I've been learning as we talk to Hannah about how egregious this stuff really is. It's worse than I even thought, I guess, Hannah, thanks to you. Thanks to you, I'm even more outraged. <laughs> so you were talking about uh, one of the early videos of of someone um, undergoing treatment in, in a film for public consumption. I'm unfamiliar. Can you talk about this film, The Three Glorias? Sure. So um, back in the 60s, Carl Rogers was developing a humanist psychology and was also thinking about, well, how do you train psychologists or psychotherapists to provide treatment and what are the various methods and what um, effects or what results can be um, demonstrated as a result of applying these various methods to uh, one particular individual who comes with a particular complaint. And um, so Gloria, uh, uh, a young divorced mother, housewife, I think she was, um, very attractive, comes to Carl Rogers to speak of um, her uh, guilt about her sexuality. And, um, okay, so there's a film, and she's subjected to uh, three different modes of um, treatment, and it was filmed. Huh. And you can, you can find it on YouTube. Huh. And so, so here's the question, you know, can you can can a staged and filmed and uh, for public consumption um, be effective in in a treatment? And and well, I mean, I think that this this assumption that you can stage and film and then show and demonstrate an actual 
therapy session is where this whole Dr. Phil, you know, phenomenon originates. Ah. So it's a particularly American phenomenon. And there's something about the idea that that a witness, a public, other than your therapist, is going to somehow provide um, uh, the context for something therapeutic to occur. Huh. And so I think he kind of opened up a can of worms that has, you know, led us to doctor, the Dr. Phil's of this world that are charlatans that really do cause harm, that seek the, the humiliation, shame, and catharsis of the individual being uh, interviewed that... Uh, is sort of wrapped up in some kind of, you know, neat little bow at the end of the hour and said, okay, well, you know, now you're healed. It's funny you should mention that. The the end of the hour, usually, if they if they get their way, they, it's almost like in those game shows where they would fly you on a on a honeymoon that you would win or a vacation. It's like, we're going to send you to this beautiful treatment spa in Malibu, California, where you'll swim in the pool and get over your addiction to meth. It's uh, They paint it like that, like you won a prize, the prize of your mental health at a luxury treatment spa. It, it, have I don't even know what to make of that. Mm. Have you, you seen what I also yes. wonder is, um, you know, what, why do the individuals who, sh- who come to the show, who allow themselves to be subjected to this? I've never understood it. I've never, except there's one exception. I will tell you one that that I figured out, um, which is Dr. Drew and his celebrity rehab. These people have fallen out of the only thing that gave them their identity, which was their celebrity status. And this is their last gasp at being celebrities, which is the only identity they have or have known. So they're willing to debase themselves in, in, in front of a camera with their all of their addiction and all of the stuff that came with that so that they can do it for in front of a camera, which I would speculate with my favorite tool, the speculator, is the only place that they really feel good is, is with a camera trained on them. They, they know what to do with that. I don't know. Would you agree or disagree? We've got a minute left, so I, I don't want to yeah. force you. It sounds like an interesting hypothesis, but I'm just wondering about the desire for um, the individual undergoing this, you know, pseudo uh, psychotherapy treatment. Why do they want to be shamed? That's a good Why, question. What What is the desire to be humiliated and shamed in 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 the course of some sort of? questioning. I'm glad you brought it up. Much to think about. We've come to the end of our time, but I just want to thank you so much for for gifting us with your valuable time, Hannah Bennett. Uh, She is in private practice as a licensed marriage family therapist out in California, and I have come to the end of my time with you. We'll be back at some future point, I hope, if they invite me, and Joan will be back on Monday. Thanks so much for being with me. We are WCPT, live, local, and progressive. It's 4.58. I'm Tori Ryder. Hope to see See you soon.